Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, I guess what, well, I know I feel this way and I'm sure our listeners all feel the same way. We are desperate to hear your thoughts on the new frying pan that you bought. Yes. How's it going? It's, it's gone well. Um, what have you fried up in there? Some chicken. I mean, honestly, it was, it's a transformation of my life. <laughs> I mean, you know, just non-stick frying pan that, you know, does... In fact, I'm sort of very protective of it. I was worried it was going to be washed up by my wife in a way that was, you know... Because you don't want to scour, scratch the no, protective you don't, filter, you the, don't. the non-stick you don't. coating, otherwise, yeah. uh, you, yeah. you know, it can yeah. poison you. So never mind the fact we're getting a new Prime Minister no, this No, the week, new frying pan. The new frying pan. I think many of us would like to live in denial about the new Prime Minister yeah. and just concentrate on the new The transition to a new frying pan, yeah, exactly. I suspect, has been smoother than the transition to a new Prime Minister. Yeah. Well, um, come, come, by the way, and... Uh, celebrate Ed's new frying pan or commiserate whatever you want to commiserate with us this coming Sunday yes Clapham reasons to be cheerful live yes Um, still a few tickets left for that so if you have a look in the uh, the description of this episode or on our social media there are links for you and we're going to be talking about a really important subject which is sort of British Empire teaching and sort of teaching the history of Britain in schools the history of Empire I don't know about you but I feel I didn't really learn anything no. about the British Empire in, in school. And I think, I know it feels like it's not about Brexit, but I think it's sort of a little bit is about Brexit. I think, you know, this is the whole thing about Britain that we haven't really come to terms with the loss of empire. I think if you don't learn about it, it's very hard to to kind of, you know, 
if you don't understand your history, things are going to go it's wrong. Insane. I think. I remember when there was uh, the, the, I think it was last year or the year before when there were the programs on TV on the anniversary of partition, and I sat and watched them with my mum who was visiting, and neither of us knew anything about it. Probably. See, I watched this thing called a passage uh, called Jewel in the Crown. Sorry, oh, which yeah, was yeah. this series. I think it probably you probably a bit we were a bit young for it. Uh, on this case, I'm not. I'm not. Be, I'm not joking. Probably it was just that few years. Yeah, and that was about sort of partition, Britain, give, you know, Britain, India getting independence and all that. But 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 I kind of agree with you. And, and also, you know, with the greatest respect to Henry VIII, is it more important to learn about Henry VIII, which I suspect every school kid has learnt about, yeah. or is it more important to learn about the British Empire? What's more relevant? I mean, it was fun to find out that Henry VIII, uh, six, both, wives. Both six wives, wrote green sleeves and exploded in his coffin. He ex- very gassy. Really? Yeah, apparently so, yeah. I mean, I mean you like would know that fact. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about at the yeah. live show. Come see us in Clapham in London. Uh, get your tickets from our social media or in the description below. That's, uh, that's that show. What are we talking about on this show? Then? We're talking about household debt. P- people often talk about the crisis of government debt. That's been a big sort of theme of the government since 2010. Uh, but actually, total personal debt in the UK is $1.64 trillion. Uh, and government debt is about the same, a bit more. Uh, the average UK household has £60,000 of debt, and that is increasing. Uh, the total interest that households are paying on all of this debt is estimated to be around £51 billion per year. And that obviously has an impact on those in debt, but, but our guests this week are arguing it also is holding back the economy more widely. We're talking to a great guy called Dan Edelstein, who, who's made a film about debt in the UK, which involved him blowing up a van with lots of debt in it. And we're finding out why he did that. Uh, Laura Hanna from Strike Debt in the US, uh, who inspired Dan, actually, to, to do the debt blowing up, Dan and his wife. And then we're joined by Jonah Montgomery, who's written a fantastic book arguing that government should abolish household debt. We'll ask her what that would involve and what impact it would have. And we're going to be joined by a comedian. I, I always end... Do you remember Vine? Do you remember Vine? Yes, yes. He was the funniest person on, on Vine, and he's very funny on Twitter as well. He's written children's books too. Comedian Olaf Falafel. And I love a good falafel. I don't know about you. I love a good Olaf. <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, speaking, speaking of good Olafs, I, I just got back from Sweden. Yeah. So that, you know, that was, that was good. I forgot to ask you. I'm sorry. How was it? Well, we were very wrapped up in Henry VIII in your frying pan. Yeah. But yeah it was, how it, was it? The trip? It was, it was glorious. Was it good bonding? Yeah, it's great father-son bonding. Although I'm quite, I got obsessed about ticks. Right. Because I didn't want either me or my son getting Lyme disease. Right. So, we're so you're not going to make him into an anxious person or anything? <laughs> I mean, that that was just always going to happen with my personality, was it? We're on this island, we're having an idyllic summer book-style time in the long grass, picking wild strawberries and blueberries. And then I notice he's got this tick attached to him. Right. So I go into a panic and I don't know what to do about it. I'm Googling it. It says you need tweezers. I don't have tweezers. I go to a shop. They don't have tweezers either. I end up taking him into a hotel and saying to the receptionist, do you have any tweezers? She says, yes. I said, it's just my son's got a tick in his arm. She said, OK, well, you tweezers will, will get that out. And she looks at me and obviously sees that I'm a mess and says, have you ever done this before? I say, no. She says, would you like me to do it for you? I say, yes, please. She gets the tweezers. She looks at my son's arm. She touches this thing with a finger. It falls off. It wasn't a tick. It was just like a speck of dirt. <laughs> That's how hyper-anxious I am. He stands no chance, does he? 
What lesson did you draw from this episode, Jeff? <laughs> what did the woman at the hotel say? She sort of laughed at me. Right. And then what tried, did Jean say? Well, you know, he, he was fine anyway. Yeah. He didn't really understand what was going on. It's just going in on some subconscious level and fueling his future anxiety. Yeah, I think so. So is that your reason to well, be some, somewhere in there. It wasn't a tick. Somewhere in there. Yeah, it wasn't a tick. Yeah. That's my reason to be Okay, cheerful. that's good. Well, mine is about my children too, he said, moving on, uh, which is that I gave a presentation at their assembly about climate change, the school assembly. I was invited to the school assembly because they were having a climate awareness day, and uh, I gave a, pre- a, a presentation. It was quite scary. Four to 11-year-olds. Did it go it, down well? I think it went down pretty well, actually. I, mean, I got them to sort of engage. So I took advice from my children in advance, and they said, you need to get them to engage. And so we, we discussed. We showed a little film done by, by my friend, who's a scientist at the British Antarctic Survey, uh, about CO2, carbon dioxide, and then we asked what causes climate change, what can sort of stop climate change, and what can you do in the school? And actually, here's an interesting thing, which is there was quite a lot of enthusiasm among the children, most of whom I don't think like vegetables, for Meat Free Monday. Interesting. And I wondered, he, he said, looking at you, do you think if they decided to go for a Meat Free Monday and they invited Paul McCartney to cut the ribbon, he'd do it? I imagine it wouldn't be the first time he'd been asked right. to cut the ribbon for a meat-free Monday. You but you never know. It's worth trying. Yeah, definitely. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're thrilled to be joined now by Dan Edelstein, who is a filmmaker and co-creator of The Bank Job, which is a film-stroke art project seeking to highlight the problems of personal debt in the UK. Dan, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. I think Ed was very uh, taken with your hat when you arrived. Is, that, is it a deer stalker? It is a deer stalker, yeah, and I have several of them uh, in different colours. You're a man who can carry off a deer stalker, Definitely, if I may yeah. say so. I do occasionally get Sherlock Holmes jibes at me, but I'm willing to, willing to take those <laughs> in order to carry on wearing my stalkers. So can, can you explain what the bank job is and uh, you know, what, what the story is you wanted to tell and how you've gone about telling it? Yeah, I mean, Bank Job, it it really evolved from the moment when I heard about a group in New York called Strike Debt. They were buying up and then abolishing millions of dollars of student and medical debt. And a friend of mine pointed me towards an article in The Guardian about them. And, um, you know, and at that point, I really didn't know that much about economics. Um, and I wasn't an activist of any kind. Uh, I was just a filmmaker that was looking for an interesting story, to be honest. And I was intrigued enough to start ordering their, you know, their movement literature, as they called it. And I found that really, really interesting. And um, that was sort of the germ of what Bank Job became. What did it become then? What is the, what's the specific idea? Wacky. Is it wacky? <laughs> I don't know if anyone like you. The word yeah. wacky makes people yeah. wince a little bit. No, wacky yeah. in a good way. It makes, it's a bit Timmy Mallet, isn't yeah. it? Oh, it is, really? Yeah, that's right. No. It is Timmy Mallet. And it's also, yeah, it sort of sounds whimsical. But there's something sort of harebrained as well. I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like harebrained because at least there's okay. a brain involved in that. Oh, brain. that's true. Okay. Uh, you know, so, so talk us through what, what you do in the film. How do you go about yeah. bringing this idea I to think life? the idea is really exciting. So exp- explain the idea. Yeah, well, so so the concept has become that, that we've basically taken over this bank and what we do in the bank is to print our own money. But rather than having Winston Churchill or Jane Austen or whoever else... Alan Turing this yeah, week. Alan, yeah, Alan Turing, that's right. Rather than having those people, although they were wonderful in their time and they've done excellent things, we're not trying to disregard them, 
what we wanted, who we wanted to put on the front of our notes were local people who were involved in one way or another with picking up the pieces of what we were arguing was a broken economic system. So we chose Gary, who set up a food bank in the area. We chose Syra, who runs something called Plates for You, which is um, a, a homeless uh, food kind of provision. Uh, Tracy, who's the headmistress of our children's school, and Steve, who, who was running at the time a youth project. And all of these, we felt, were characters who could be celebrated as sort of citizens who were standing up and trying to do something in the area. And if, if we were talking about value, we felt that all of these people had an amazing sense of value within what they were doing. And so within our bank, which was a sort of imaginary central bank... Well, we you, could, did, you did use an actual bank building. We have an actual bank building. We're still in the building. Uh, so we, we started to imagine ourselves as, as almost like the Bank of England. And it's called HBSC, is that right? No, it's called uh, Host Street Central Bank, so HSCB. HSCB, yeah. yeah. So, so we managed to... We, we sort of saw ourselves as printing our own money. Just so our listeners understand it, you then sold these banknotes, correct? Yes, I did. Uh, or we did. We, we started selling the Your banknotes. Your wife is an artist. She designed these banknotes with the face of local people. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, so we started selling them at face value. So we made a 1, a 5, a 10, a 20, 50, and then we started to introduce hundreds and thousands in there. Yeah. And each one had the faces of these local people yeah. on. And, uh, yeah, we started selling them, and we sold, I think, on that initial run, we sold £40,000 worth. Yeah. We divided the, the, the money that yeah. we made, the real money, the Winstons and whatever, yeah. we divided that into two. So £20,000 went into buying up uh, £1.2 million worth of local high-interest debt in Walthamstow, and the other 20000 um went into each of those causes depicted local on those, groups. No- those notes. So you bought the debt. What kind of debt are we talking about? And where do you buy debt from? Yeah, that's a really – both of those are interesting. Debt's – are traded um, for fractions of their face value. So imagine I I took a loan for £1,000 from a bank. If I then didn't pay that back and I went incognito or, you know, uncontactable for a series of months, two or three months, the bank has a mechanism where it's obliged to sell that debt. So my £1,000 of debt gets sold for £500. Then what happens is if the if the next people on the chain who have bought that debt, if they can't contact me and they can't get back their £1,000 they will sell it on again at a discount. And, so, and this goes on and on and on. And that's why 20,000 could buy 1.2 million pounds worth exactly. of debt. Because as the debt nears like a, a, like a six-year-old um, sort of age, if, if the creditor hasn't been able to contact the debtor for that amount of time, the debt becomes what's called statute barred, which means that it's written off by law. So as it nears that age, the debt becomes almost worth less or worth less. Oh, do you know what less. kind of things it was for, this debt? We, well, we, we targeted high interest debt. So we're looking at payday debt, also catalogue debts, uh, some credit card debts as well. And uh, that's the type of debts that we that Who we did you actually up. buy them from? Uh, we bought the debts from like a massive, uh, a massive debt purchasing company. And as it was nearing the kind of end of right. the cycle, it was basically, it would have probably been written off. So was there a value in what we did in terms of helping the, the local people? You know, probably not. It was much more of a symbolic thing. And the story doesn't end there because then you took the debt and blew it up. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. So we, we 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 did that. It's called Big Bang Two. So it was meant to be a response to Thatcher's Big Bang. I don't know if you your sure. audience would be uh, you know remembering Deregulation what of the that city, is. Yeah. So yeah, so Big Bang Two we we did literally opposite the city. So we used the, the all all the kind of skyline of the city was in the shot, as it were, or in the artwork, and then we blew up what looked like a kind of cash in transit vehicle, but instead stuffed with. Debt, you know, stuffed with a visual representation of the 1.2 million because blow, blowing up just debt is kind of abstract. We wanted to give it like also the film has got a heist like feel, so it does. It is a bit wacky, actually. You're right. Caper, a yeah, caper, caper, caper. Yeah, it's a caper. caper. Yeah, the word caper's good because yeah. you, you know, but but it, so it's got that heist like feel where you know but we wanted it to caper. feel. We wanted it to feel a bit like um, what's that Michael Caine film? The Italian, Italian job. The Italian yeah, job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We wanted it to feel like a group of citizens come together to pull one over on the banks. We, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is um, where Jeff is the supreme and uh, what he contends benign ruler. If you were the minister for debt, do you think? Sure. Secretary of State for debt? If you were the Secretary of State. I mean, State- I would have made you Chancellor. Okay, Chancellor, fine. Uh, I mean, look, you're the boss. Uh, uh, he said through gritted teeth. Uh, if you were the chancellor in the Jeffocracy, what was the first thing you would do on on debt? Well, I mean, I know that in this uh, in this program that you're putting together, you're going to be speaking to Jonna. I think a lot of her ideas of uh, you know basically forwarding the the, the zero or the minuscule uh, rate of interest that the Bank of England is currently offering the commercial banks shoehorning that or pushing that towards the households of Britain and allowing them a seven-year, uh, effectively, mortgage on the Bank of England uh, to pay off the most toxic debts on their balance sheet sounds to me a really good way of freeing up uh, their income streams to actually be productive rather than them paying all their money. That, that I'm talking about the households of Britain now. Rather than having to use their, their money from their incomes to service uh, debt that goes into banks uh, and often just sits there, they would actually be able to start using that to buy more goods and services within the, their local areas and stuff. It's incredibly entertaining. For those who are um, interested, they can see your the trailer for your film, uh, Bank Job. When does the actual film come out? So when can people see the full caper? I won't call it a wacky caper. Yeah, yeah, don't uh, call it a wacky caper. Yeah, hair-brained the, caper. The, the hair-brained caper should be ready uh, early next year. So I would suggest they go to bankjob.pictures and I will make sure that the trailer is on the homepage there for these listeners to enjoy uh, in the privacy of their own homes. Dan, we love your caper. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, much appreciated. I'd like to say that we're joined on the line now by Laura Hanna, who's co-founder of the Debt Collective campaign, to, which aims to tackle personal debt in the United States. Uh, they're behind the Rolling Jubilee program, which has used donations to buy and write off $32 million of discharged debt. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So... Tell us initially the story behind why you set up this campaign. Well, to talk about the story about why we set up the campaign, we would need to talk a bit about personal debt in the U.S. And currently, as it stands, U.S. consumer debt has hit $14 trillion in the first quarter of 2019. And that's surpassed $13 trillion held in credit cards, auto loans, mortgages, etc. around the time of, of the housing crash. So right now, at the end of the first three months of 2019, that means student loan debt has hit $1.486 trillion, according to the New York Reserve. 
Um, at the height of the financial crisis, it was at $611 billion, and it's ballooned since. Right now in the United States, 77% of U.S. households hold consumer debt and 40% use credit cards to cover their basic needs, rent, etc. We can go ahead and talk about the stats of misery, but um, from our perspective, the story behind how we got started was really that the Debt Collective, which is the organization that we've developed and work under today, has its roots in Occupy Wall Street, where several of us met and began to collaborate. For that project, we started two initiatives. We held debtors' assemblies in several cities across the country to address the stigma and shame surrounding being indebted. And then we created a publication called the Debt Resisters Operations Manual. And the second initiative was the Rolling Jubilee. And our slogan for that initiative was a bailout by the people for the people, which was echoing the fact that the banks were bailed out while people across the country had been sold out in the aftermath of the crash. With that, we learned about secondary debt markets and formed an entity to buy portfolios of debt. And then rather than collect on the debt, abolish it. And that's written off $32 million of, of debt, yeah? Yes, payday loans, education debt, you know, medical debt, and private probation debt. I mean, that's obviously a significant amount of money, but obviously a drop in the ocean compared to the scale of the debt. Is, is, it, is it in pursuit then of, of sort of wider government action of buying and writing off debt? So we created the initiative really as an organizing vehicle to do a few, a few different things. Shift the public conversation around indebtedness. There is a fake morality um, around you know, the individual burden, the individual responsibility, um, when we wanted to create a public challenge to moralizing myths around debt. So we're told that we're heavily indebted because of a personal of personal failure, right? Because we're not working hard enough or aren't smart enough or have somehow had a personal failing. And that narrative continued post-crash. And looking at the debt burden that we have, you, you can't really see $1.4 trillion of student debt as a personal failure. It's a structural one, and that's what that project did. It was a public education project that helped people out a little bit along the way while we built you know, a pilot debtors union, which is the next initiative that we're currently working on. And so then tell us about the debtors union and the next project. So we used the last um, rolling jubilee buy to start a pilot around a debtors union. We knew that we couldn't buy all the debt in the world. Um, but we really wanted to begin a conversation to address structural problems, and that led us to the Debt Collective. We, in 2013, purchased a portfolio of private student debt, which was held with then one of the biggest for-profit colleges in the country, called Corinthian Inc. From that initiative that we launched the first um, U.S. the first student debt strike in U.S. history, we won from that initiative and a legal strategy over a billion dollars of debt relief. Wow. Which again is a, a very small win. But students stopped paying, did they? Right. So when we launched this, this notion of a, of a debtors union, we organized with former Corinthian students. 15 of them went on a strike. We publicized that and we worked with them. We brought them to DC. We did loads of direct actions. And from there, there is a flood of interest from other former for-profit student debtors across the country who reached out to us and we didn't even have the infrastructure to accommodate the capacity. Like we didn't have capacity to accommodate the interest. Um, people who went to all sorts of schools started to contact us with similar stories. Then we started to build our infrastructure to accommodate that type of participation. Could it work with financial institutions that have very high rates of interest, the, the debtors union negotiation? Sure. I think that there can be new forms of 
again, collective bargaining around contracts, right? Renegotiating contracts, in other words. Setting contracts and renegotiating contracts. Laura, just one last thing. We have a thing on the podcast, which is uh, it's, it's, it's a utopia. It's called the Jeffocracy. I am a benign leader. Um, if, if I was to appoint you uh, Treasury Secretary or Chancellor, uh, what is the first <laughs> thing you would do on day one around debt? Uh, can I just say if I were to be elected President of the United States? Pre- pres- president is fine, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. President Hannah. Let's just go straight to the top, okay? So I would use my executive powers to override what will be a gridlocked Congress, cancel all student debt using a power that's called Compromise and Settlement Authority. Few people realize that that Congress has already given administrative agencies the power to cancel those debts. So I would use my authority to override Congress and simply wipe out all debt, student debt, that is. Great. We look forward to President Hannah. Laura Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care. We're thrilled to be joined now by Dr. John Montgomery, who's a reader in international political economy at King's College London and author of Should We Abolish Debt?, which argues that government should invest in a major programme of writing off and refinancing personal debt. John, thanks for coming to see us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. And, and I, I thought we could start um, by you maybe giving us a, a picture of the, the situation with um, personal or household debt in the UK. Absolutely. Well, household debt uh, is at the highest level it's ever been in recorded history. Um, and I think that while we can get caught up on the numbers of, of you know, 1.6 trillion uh, pounds, which again, if we think about how much people are hung up on the public debt, it's 1.8 uh, trillion. So they're pretty much at level pegging. But instead of looking at just the numbers and saying, wow, they're really big, if we ask instead, you know, how did they get so big? You know, why is debt grown so much? Uh, we really get a sense of, of the scale of the problem because it's not just about individuals having debt. It's about how many individuals are now in debt and where that debt is distributed in society. Is that because people are struggling or is it because debt as a product has been sold to us more and, and that as a, as a system of consumerism has become a much bigger thing? Yeah, well, it's a, li- it's a little bit of both in that you have the kind of structure of the economy is, is very much dependent on debt now. Debt has become a necessity for for economic participation for many in society. Again, not everyone. Some people are making an absolute killing off debt. It's it's not a problem at all. It's a source of wealth. Uh, but for others, they struggle to make their, their repayments and more and more people are struggling as we need debt to access residential housing. Uh, to, you know, we need mortgages. We need debt to, to pay for our car or our season's rail ticket. We need debt to pay utilities, to pay the bills at the end of the month, to go on a family holiday. And these little debts add up and add up. And what we find is of, of the, you know, 8 million people in Britain who are in real problem debt and struggling, and you ask them, uh, you know, as the, uh, the debt charities have done, why are you in debt? They'll tell you, because I was made redundant. Uh, I have a drop in my income or a family member was ill, uh, had a heart attack. Getting away from what Laura Hanna said to us, you know, is a sort of moral judgment. Yes. In other words, it's been because of people's objective circumstances. I mean, debt isn't a bad thing, is it, to be clear? No, not at all. I mean, there's good credit, right? It's this kind of credit helps the economy. It flows through the economy. It, it is how money is created. So we, we in a sense, need it. Uh, there's, there's no replacement for it. But the problem is when we rely only on it or we become dependent on it in a, in a kind of pathological way because we can't generate money or growth any other way. And your book is provocatively titled, Should We Abolish 
household debt. Are you arguing for the abolition? Yes, I am uh, arguing for the abolition of debt. But by that, I mean, uh, you know, not all debt uh, all at once, but rather the most toxic debts, the most pernicious debts. And what would those be? Targeting uh, old debts, those that were incurred before 2008 that were already bailed out. The lenders were bailed out for that over 10 years ago. We can sort of slice and dice and hack away at this mountain so that we could breathe life back into the economy and, and, and get it out from under this huge amount of, of debt that just chokes it, basically. Really, the way to think about it would be just completing the bailout. Lenders were bailed out in 2018. 10, 12 years later, we, we bail out the borrowers. But it does require coordination. Uh, it means that uh, lenders would have to accept that they'd have to generalize the cheap interest rate. So we have this big mountain of debt at the same time as we have the lowest interest rates in, in, in history as well. Uh, but those lowest interest rates are actually only something that borrow, that the lenders get access to, you know, as they trade in the discount window. So they get access to, to credit at zero and then lend it on for, you know, 2%, 4%, 20% if it's a credit card, 30% if and, it's an overdraft. And sorry, is it is it because of the sort of social oppression of people in debt that you're proposing this? In other words, it makes their life so much harder or is it for wider economic reasons that you're proposing this or is it sort of both? It is absolutely both because they are connected uh, and it's a bit, it's again, this is the problem of the kind of macroeconomic framework, yeah. which is that we, we, we tend to frame these things as individual issues. But the issue is how many people are in debt and, and how it, uh, it, it grows to affect the economy, but also society. So because people don't have the money to spend? Or? Absolutely. It's because the long-term implications, so when debt grew the fastest uh, in the 90s and in the early 2000s and the lead up to 2008, we know that happens because income is stagnated. So households are sort of yeah. making up the difference of, of, of wages with, with debt. Households are still 67% of demand is, is coming right. from the household sector. So when they are mired in debt, they can't they can't spend, they can't invest, they can't save. And it's not just for the national economy. We have to remember that you know the British consumer is part, along with the Americans, the consumers of last resort in the global economy. Where will China sell its goods if 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 the Anglo-American consumer can't take on more credit to buy it? And therefore, abolishing household debt becomes that mechanism to both provide relief but push towards reform. So, so the reform has to go hand in hand with it because otherwise you end up with the same thing 10 years down the line or 15 years. Absolutely, as we learned in 2008. Well, hang on, what is the reform? Sorry. So the reform is away from debt dependence. So that is about you know making credit a public good uh, instead of a kind of private... What does, what does that mean? So if we imagine that... Um, you know, banks create money when they yeah. when they issue debt. It's not just that. They charge the interest rate that they deem most profitable to them for that loan. They are then able to resell that debt on secondary markets that are sold and resold and sliced and diced a trillion times over. Yeah. We need to, to, to curtail these activities and move credit from being short-term speculative, uh, dumb, easy money to, to get profit from, for credit to be used towards investment in long-term patient uh, capital. So we want people, you know, investing not in in a property speculation bubble, but rather in residential housing that can provide a long-term wealth gain. There will have to be no longer a dependence on debt to drive growth. So debt can be used as a mechanism for investment, but not as the means to create growth. And your specific proposal around the current debts is that government would invest £500 billion to write off the debt 
i.e. pay off the owed amount, and then it would provide $2 trillion of guarantees to write down debt. So that's refinance with lower interest loans. Do you want to just explain what those two things are and where they apply? Because it's like, I know there's like lots of different types of debt. The, the proposal then is about hiving off um, the old debt, so those that originate before 2008, that those are the ones that would be uh, and toxic debts subject to cancellation. But new debts, ones that were incurred since 2008, since we bailed out and since we engaged in rounds of quantitative easing, those would be eligible for refinancing. So giving households access to cheap credit. Private debt at the moment is $1.6 trillion. That's £139 million a day in interest payments that flow from private individuals into banks as interest payments. If we just reduce those interest payments to, say, $99 million a day, we would have £40 million a day flowing into the economy that's either being consumed, saved, invested, or used to pay off the existing stock of debt. So it just provides that bit of relief. It, you know, it's about creating momentum within the economy to, to, to move in a different direction. So in your proposal, you, you advocate focusing on specific types of debt rather than targeting heavily indebted households. What's the argument for doing this? Well, the argument for doing this is is to not get hamstrung by by kind of generalist principles that there that there are those at a particular benchmark and everyone under that qualifies and everybody over that well sorry rather it's to focus on the types of debt that we know have the biggest economic impact. Uh, so debts that people carry for, for over 60 months, that's over five years. Once you have a debt for over five years, a, a non-mortgage debt, that is, uh, we know that the, the long-term implications uh, of that are, are, are very troubling for your overall uh, prospect of, of financial security. So we need to target the kind of most pernicious debts, the very high-cost debts. Uh, you know, these are the, the, the forms of, of payday lending, doorstep lending, um, you know, high fees uh, that are not matched for any other reason, just for, you know, for for profit sake, especially if these are small amounts of money. I think that the logic of of charging a thousand percent interest on a a 50 quid loan uh, can't be sustained when we have zero percent interest and and quantitative easing, you know, subsidizing lenders uh, en masse. So we need to target these very toxic and pernicious debts in order to have the most bang for our bailout bucks, as it were, or pounds. And uh, and that's how you do it, is by having a more strategic and targeted approach rather than a kind of blanket statement that if your debt is this much, you qualify, and, and if it's not, then uh, you're on the hook. And how does government afford to do this? Well, I suppose the same way they afforded to bail out the banks, right? They decide it's necessary. Uh, they have their own access to long-term financing. Because again, let's remember that austerity is a logic that exists in every government department but the Treasury. Because if we look at the Treasury and we look at public debt, we'll see that it's there. in the past 10 years, there's been no austerity. It's gone up year on year on year. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the future of this? Uh, I mean, we know that it just cannot continue to repeat itself. It will for as long as it can. They said in the after the you know the two thousand eight bailout, as long as the music's playing, we're going to keep dancing. But a lot of them, to be fair, a lot of the money that was in the bailout came back. And as will be the case here, when we offer this relief, the right. uplift in the economy will generate enough stimulus to to earn back the money. 
uh, that way. But I think uh, maybe another way to think about it is a tax cut paid for by the banks, because you just get more of your own uh, money in your pocket. As your debt uh, liabilities are reduced, you have more money in your pocket to spend in the economy. But that is not paid for out of the Treasury. It's paid for, uh, you know, by those institutions that continue, although the bailout... To hold the debt. Yes, or that that are the lenders. What about the moral hazard argument, i.e. people have taken out this debt, isn't this going to encourage people to think they can sort of take out more debt because it'll just be written off, just to make the case? People who've been prudent and haven't taken out lots of debt. Now, I know that's a moral judgment, so maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but, but people who haven't, let's not make a moral judgment, people who haven't taken out lots of debt are, in some sense maybe not paying for, but are kind of being disadvantaged relative to those who have taken on lots of debt. Well, that is a very common framing that somehow, yeah, you you you, you reward the, the, the profligate and, and punish the prudent. You know, that's kind of the, yeah. A, a, yeah, it is a very particular moral framing. But even to think about it as sort of borrower against borrower, right, that there's a yeah. kind of uh, a competition here between who gets what. Again, that, that does make sense on a very sort of individualized level, but it, it negates the, the collective good that is created by providing relief. Because yes, debt is concentrated in particular parts of society. The younger the, you are, the more likely right. you are to be in debt. A single mother with children is is the most likely to be in debt. Pensioners. So those that are, uh, you know, we can see the, the demographics and, and, and those that have the most debt. So that means that there are those that don't have any or that debt is an asset for them. They could be made, if you want to frame it as a kind of them versus us made worse off. But that overlooks how when we create the uplift through debt cancellation, that those people who don't have debts will still benefit um, in that they will, you know, have access to, uh, you know, more buoyant consumer markets, there will be uh, more investment, there, you know, that there'll be more consumption. So we have to kind of understand in the same way, uh, as all bailouts, people will lose. But the point is that this is a strategic move in order to create gain uh, across the economy uh, and in the future. We have a thing on the podcast called the the Jeffocracy, where I am a, a benign ruler in a utopia. If I was to appoint you, and I'm, I'm guessing it's Chancellor, I've already already given that role away once today. But if if I was to appoint, I mean, kind you, of administration you're going to be, really, right, <laughs> Secretary of the Treasury, yes. maybe. Secretary of the Treasury, that'll do. Yeah. Um, what, what would your first... you can't just try and please everybody all the time. <laughs> That's, what, that's, that's my personality. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. It's quite dangerous for the country. Um, what, what is the first thing you would do on day one? Well, on day one, I would offer uh, £14,000 of 0% balance transfer. So I would open a household long-term refinancing fund and say that that every uh, individual you know, registered through their national insurance uh, could have access to up to £14,000 to consolidate their debts uh, that they have uh, into a kind of 0% balance transfer for seven years. So I would just become a UK uh, Barclay card 0% balance transfer that every every homeowner knows they get, uh, you know, in, in the mail. Instead, uh, we would, that is how we would start by just offering people that bit of relief for a portion of their debts. And for that's the sort of 500, is that 500? I'm doing my quick arithmetic. Is that 500 billion, a bit more? No, that's credit guarantees. And as I put in the proposal, that would be up to two trillion pounds. And we wouldn't get anywhere near that, even with 14,000 pounds each, because the total outstanding debt is is only 1.6 trillion. But this is about extending uh, to everybody access to cheap credit, the same cheap credit that's been available for over 10 years. Okay. Joanna Montgomery, 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what do you think then? I'll be honest, when we, when we came to this, yes. I thought it was, uh, to use the word of the day, quite a wacky idea. Yeah. It sounds like one of these ideas that unless you start digging into it, it just sounds like free money for all, which, yeah. I, you know, a wacky, wacky, the wacky caper. Wacky, but um, I, th- I thought there was a phrase Jono used that I thought was interesting. Yeah. It's calling it like a tax cut only paid for by the banks. Um and I thought thought that was an interesting way slogan. of framing it, uh, especially when you think of the bailout the banks got after 2008. I mean, I think what is interesting about it is, and you've maybe detected this in me as well, there's definitely a sort of resistance to this because it feels like, as you say, sort of wacky-do write-off, uh, you know, not just wacky, but wacky-do, uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, write-off. Scooby-Doo's yeah. younger brother. Uh, sort of write, you know, you're just writing it off for people. Mind you, you know, that's what people said at the time of the financial crisis about the bank. It's a moral hazard. Now, maybe it was a moral hazard. I think there's a, quite a big hurdle to get to this. But then I suppose the two most interesting things for me are, one, it sort of focuses on the fact that I think one of the great hidden injustices is that the poorest people pay the most mm. for credit of any kind, and they're the people that can least afford it. You know, they're, they're not paying 1% or whatever the level of the sort of Bank of England interest rate is or less. They're paying, you know, 20%, 30%, etc. So that's one thing, and that seems, it seems like a great injustice. And secondly, that is having massive – the debts that people are in are having massive knock-on implications – for their lives. I actually think the social case is probably, in my mind, stronger than the macroeconomic case, maybe. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's just making people's lives miserable and they're stuck in this sort of debt that they can't pay off and that, that they're sort of saddled with. And then, the, and then students are a sort of special, a particular case of that with, with particular sort of details of that. But, but so, so I think it, I think it does focus on, 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 on that. And, um, yeah, so, so you're sort of into it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think the thing we've learned is it has to go along with other reform. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Do share your thoughts on this week's episode with us. You can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on social media at Cheerful Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. The last couple of episodes uh, we've had a good reaction to. This comes from David Walker, who says uh, on the subject of uh, our episode on LGBT inclusive education. He says, one thing that seemed to strike both of you in the episode, such as my flimsy excuse for impinging on your inbox, was the importance of teaching history of issues like the queer and black civil rights movement and the context and understanding this provides uh, more so than the well-intentioned everything's fine now veneer of some of the current practices. I happen to very strongly agree with the need for this for the reason that queer history is incredibly fragile. Unlike other communities, we do not have intergenerational links through which history can be passed down. With each death, a lot of history gets lost, and it's only the dedicated work of a few brilliant and often amateur historians and collectors that there's really anything. As has been the case for decades, most of our community spaces are bars or otherwise revolve around alcohol. Even today, there is huge stigma surrounding queer people interacting with children, uh, from drag queens causing furore by reading in libraries to gay teachers in schools and the more unutterable slanders. So here's my radical idea. Queer history in schools and inclusive queer community spaces where young queer people can come and learn about it from those who lived it. I hope this mild diversion through the struggles of queer people to make, record and hear their own history has been at least a little interesting. I could go go on for hours, um, but suffice to say, I was very pleased to hear the teaching of queer history mentioned by someone with such an audience at a time when actually things do seem to be getting more bleak for queer people. So thank you. That's David. This one comes from Federico Luzzi, uh, and it's about our episode on uh, gender equality in sport. Dear Ed and Jeff, I'm a big fan of your show. Very pleased to see your episode on gender equality in sport appear in my feed. It's extremely interesting and valuable to hear about the extent of differences in uptake of sporting opportunities across genders. At the same time, I thought two significant areas of discussion were missing. The first is the issue of trans and intersex athlete inclusion. The sporting world relies on a binary understanding of a sex and gender, which many deem outdated. And there is evidence, for example, that transgender men and women face distinctive barriers to sport participation. The second is the oft-overlooked issue of sex segregation. There are very few areas of social life where sex segregation exists, yet in sports this is presupposed as unproblematic. It would be worth bringing visibility to female athletes who are denied the opportunity to compete at their level of ability. For example, Canadian national squad goalkeeper Stephanie Labbe has been fighting against the Canadian Premier Development League who have blocked her from joining the male team Calgary Foothills, despite them wanting her on her team. Mexican international footballer Maribel Dominguez was in a similar predicament in 2008. And at the amateur level, there are female athletes in the UK who are denied the chance to compete with male teams even though they are good enough to do so.
In my view, seeing females successfully compete with and against males at many levels will do more to change stereotypes of female athletes than any increase in viewership of female-only sports competitions. Yet this is precisely what is not allowed to happen in certain flagship sports. Thank you for your consideration. And this comes from Tom Ives, who says, As the dad of a sporty six-year-old girl, I've been frustrated by the equipment available for girls. If I try to buy her brother swimming trunks, I could take my pick from racing shorts and trunks. If I try to buy her a swimsuit, all have massive flowers and frilly skirts. Similarly for trainers, everything has pink glitter and soles unsuitable for sports. If girls are to think sports are for them, then the equipment should respect their participation and allow them to learn. The problem's right through the system, I tried to buy an England women's kit for Christmas. The FA shop can supply England kits through the ages for the men's team, but nothing for the women's team. Hopefully the Lionesses, cricket and netball teams will combine to respect girls' sports. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here with some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Olaf Falafel. Hello. Hello. Now, you and Ed have something in common because uh, you, you've both... We like falafels. Well, that's that. <laughs> I mean, you're presuming that Olaf likes falafels. Well, I, I'm actually named Falafel because I like falafel. So, yes, you were right. What was your real name? Derek Chickpeas. No. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up on the, uh, the Googles and you'll, you'll see it's Derek Chickpeas. Derek Chickpeas. <laughs> Ed's looking around the room like, are they making fun of me? Yes. No, here's, here's what you've got in common, is that yeah. you've both very recently done school assemblies. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. How did yours go? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. What yeah. was it about? It was about my latest book. It's One Giant Leak for Mankind. How fantastic. Yeah, so o- Olaf, uh, as, as well as comedy, writes children's books. And, and draw the pictures and sing the theme tune. So, so this one is uh, One Giant Leak... Leak. For man- yeah, mankind. so basically the gist of it is it starts off very factual, very accurate to the Apollo 11 mission. They get to the moon, then they hear a weird sound, and it turns out it's moon baboons uh, that fart a lot, and they nick their Nothing pod. like a good fart. Actually, there was a fart in my assembly. Was there? Yep, because um, cows and sheep farts uh-huh. are a big climate change problem. And was that, was that a big high point in the assembly? Well, they didn't laugh as much as they expected them to. I think kids are just more sophisticated well, these I d- days. Well, I think Olaf would disagree with you here. I've, well, I, I kind of really root down and dissect the word fart, and I ask oh. them for synonyms, and we've got, we were talking earlier about parps and blow-offs and toots and poots and cut right. the cheese and guff. I could go on. Uh, but no, they, they really do still love a good fart joke. Because right. okay. your, your first children's... The way you tell them, I guess. <laughs> your, your first children's book was... Well, it was Old MacDonald Heard a Fart. Which then got tamed for the British marketer, Old MacDonald Heard a Pop. Oh. Fart is better, isn't Fart, it? What kind I know. of Puritan country Tell are we living in? Tell that to the in? people at HarperCollins. Yeah. <laughs> but it's actually, it's, yeah, I was saying it's, it's fart. It's Old MacDonald Heard a Fart in Australia and New Zealand, where it has like, outsold it by four times. So just goes to show. You need fart in the title. You do, you so do. Bear that in mind. And you're, you're off to Edinburgh. Your show is called Knitting with Maracas. Knitting with Maracas, yeah. It's. Um, at the pear tree at two fifty, it's very silly, very stupid. Kind of lots of surreal jokes and audience interaction, and there is a deeper meaning. Which, well, I say deeper meaning. It's basically trying to get everyone to revert back to thinking like a child again. So you brought along some ideas, Olaf, uh, ways to which we could improve the world. 
Okay, so basically retraining all those really annoying animals that have no kind of point, like wasps and jellyfish, and retraining them to eat plastic. So basically they, they're more useful, and also we won't hate them as much. Now, this is, this is a good idea. I mean, this could, this could fix the climate crisis. It could do. Obviously, we, as humans, I'm talking on behalf of all of us, are the most annoying because we've created the mess in the first place. Yes. Obviously, I'm not discounting that. But, you know, wasps, come on. Do you like a wasp bed? I don't love wasps, but then isn't pollination quite important? Bees, bees do that and make honey. So no, they, see, wasps, you think wasps, wasps are the poor cousins? Well, they're, they're only doing half the job of bees. <laughs> they must be from the same family and then have... Well, everyone's got someone in their family, haven't they, who's just not as good as no, the other that's one? true. <laughs> <laughs> haven't they, Ed? Is there a creature that eats plastic? Well, no. Well, you've got, like, some kind of termites and things like that that mm. eat stuff. But I had a dog that would eat anything. Maybe you could genetically engineer your dog and some wasps. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever been stung by a wasp? Yes. Not that, not that I really remember. Not in a sort of big way. I haven't. I've reached 46 years old. No bee or wasp sting. And I'm paranoid that I'm going to get stung and go into anaphylactic shock. Well, mine came last year and it was at a barbecue and it was just under my eye. And I didn't go into a shock, but it kind of swole up. How bad is it then? Uh, it's... It's like a pinprick with a kind of stinging nettle kind of feeling and then it swells up and it doesn't go away for a while. You look like somebody who would have a much higher pain, pain threshold <laughs> than I do, though. It's the beard. Right, anyway, I think we're into this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. What's next? Biscuit ration, free on the NHS, basically. I, I'm a big advocate of free biscuits. Uh, I don't think anyone should go without them. I've actually got a thing that I've been working on that is called Biscuitology, where I can kind of tell a little bit about your personality just from oh, your really? biscuit. Oh, really? Yeah. Go on, like reading tea bags. Well, it's kind of. It's okay, go on then. What's your favourite biscuit? What's your favourite biscuit? Uh, I, I like a custard cream. I like the Classic. ornate, I like the ornate le- lattice work around the... Yeah, uh, the, the kind of the yeah. Art Nouveau yes. lattice. Yeah, yeah. I like it. So connoisseurs, it means you are the kind of person who will save the two halves of a pistachio shell and use them to make the sound of a very tiny horse. <laughs> That's true. There you go. That's so, true. What's I'm, yours? Well, I, I know the controversy about this, but I like Jaffa, Jaffa cake. cake. Yeah, there we go. See, I, I, I'm not so sure about you now. <laughs> really? But it means, let me see. Oh, yeah, it, it says that you're the kind of person who, instead of using Domestos to clean his toilet, will use Yakult and then <laughs> fetch a microscope to watch the battle between evil and friendly bacteria. I mean, that is you. That is you that's, down to a T. Pretty much you all over, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So, so how does this tie into biscuits being free on the NHS then? Well, I just think not enough people have access to biscuits. And I just think we should be able to get... A bit like ships uh, in the olden days would give you your rum ration. I think <laughs> everybody should have a biscuit ration. Should it not be like vegetables or fresh, fresh fruit? I'm Fig sorry. roll, Garibaldi. <laughs> Squash five flies. A day. Yeah, the my Come on, I think as, as somebody who's run multiple campaigns, what's going to play better with the electorate? Free biscuits for all or free fruit for all? Clearly free fruit for all. <laughs> right. What's your favourite biscuit? Oh, now, now we're talking. I do like a party ring because I'm a party guy. Mm. Uh, yeah, Probably the pink ones with the white icing. Oh, God, I'm just thinking about them now. That, that would be lovely to have a I think rich tea is underrated. I'd say that, I'd say that it's kind of... Underrated or boring? I think the only way a rich tea is acceptable is if your name is Richard and your surname is T and you could use them as <laughs> edible business cards. <laughs> but that's the kind of creative thinking we need, I think. All right, <laughs> what else you got, Olaf? I think it should be legal for me to use real drumsticks on anyone who makes the drum roll noise after any of my bad jokes. <laughs>
Does that happen to you a lot? Oh, yeah, it does happen. It's, but yeah, with my jokes. I don't know if you've heard any of my jokes. What's that? You'd like to hear some? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I've actually moved into quite a weird neighbourhood. I saw a witch uh, and a lion. They were carrying this wardrobe in next door. And I said, what are you up to? And they said, none of your business. Very good. Well done that you resisted doing the drums. He resisted though. doing yeah. the drum. Yeah. Yeah. Only yeah. because I pulled out these drumsticks. <laughs> well, I think we're into that, yeah. aren't we, Jeff? This next one's quite sensible. I think to kind of foster kind of more of a community spirit and like get people to know their neighbours, I think like cook for a neighbour day where you just invite your neighbours round and one of You could use your new frying pan. Exactly. Is it quite high risk, do you think? Take your relationship in either a particularly bad direction or a particularly good direction with your neighbours and then something goes wrong. You're, you're stuck with them, aren't you? What are you going to do? Well, Move yeah, house? No, I'm more be worried that one would cook something not very nice. Exactly, and then you know yeah. you have to see them every day. Everybody has something they can cook that is quite good. Everyone has like their signature dish. Mm. So I just, I just think you know. What's, what's your, your signature, signature dish? dish? Oh, look at that! Yeah. Both of you at the same question at the same time. It's in stereo. I do a good. Um, it's pancetta and parsnip and parmesan. It's quite nice. When I was a leader, I had to put into, when my cooking was much worse, I had to put some signature dish into a uh, cookbook and I chose tuna melt. <laughs> there I'm you not go. sure that quite counts as a signature dish. So Ed's neighbours can expect a wonderful uh, tuna, tuna melt, melt on like, Cook for a Neighbour Day. I'm going round to Ed's for a tuna melt. <laughs> But to be honest, in retrospect, sort of. I think uh, I think maybe we should have kind of maybe we should have been a bit more dishonest. (laughs) Well, to be honest, it's not about the food. It's more about you know getting people that don't necessarily meet with. (laughs) I do. I'm sorry. I'm not just saying this to flatter you, but I mean I do really like. I mean, not that you've got specific responsibility for falafel, <laughs> but I mean, I do really like falafel. Oh, good! I'm glad. I'll, I'll let the guys know. Why did you choose, <laughs> why did you choose falafel? Well, as, as a name, yeah, because it goes well with Olaf. Olaf falafel. It just sounds. Go on, have a have a what? have a go. Olaf falafel. All right, you have uh, one last idea, Olaf. I think there should be a child PM who basically he has to dress up like a prime minister with a little suit and everything, and has a little lectern, and he makes policies that affect children. He or she, Olaf. Yes, he or she. Sorry, did I say he? You did, yeah. My two daughters will tell yeah, me. Yeah, they that. rightly. Uh, how old are your daughters? Eight and ten. Yeah, they're definitely going to tell, you off. tell me my off. My children, eight, my boys are eight and ten too. They tell me off. Well, we've talked about the youth parliament before now, haven't we? And you think they sort of behave better than actual House of Commons? I think there's something about children which is that they don't. They're not sort of encumbered by all of the sort of encumbrances that stop you coming up with good ideas. Well, that, that's basically what my show is about. Knitting with the Maracas is the title that my three-year-old nephew gave me. And basically, I was round my mum's house, grandma, and she was looking after Sid, who's three, and she, my mum's got this huge toy box, and it's filled with old cars and toys and m- musical instruments that I used to play with and my brother used to play with. And Sid had got these maracas out, and he was clacking the handles together he was holding them by the round bit and not the handles and I kind of looked at him and thought oh okay I said what are you up to Sid and he went I'm knitting with maracas and he looked at me and he said it just like obviously and I just thought yeah that, that's right you are you're knitting with maracas it just amazed me that kids are like yeah it doesn't matter it's like what's whatever. the best idea you've heard when you visited schools with your um book? not necessarily the best idea but yeah. I do a question and answer it bit at yeah. the back and it's normally I ask I get questions like uh how long does it take to draw a book and you know have yeah. you met David Williams and all those kind of things uh but one kid 
I don't think he quite got the gist of what the questions were supposed to be about. So he put his hand up. I asked him what his question was, and he said, are sausage dogs called sausage dogs because they look like sausages, because they like to eat sausages, or because they're the meat that sausages are made from? <laughs> and it was amazing because it completely threw me because I was expecting, at worst, a book, uh, a question about Neil Armstrong or something. But, yeah, that, that's, that's a good question. That's a good question. And I said to him, I think it's because they look like sausages, although depends where you buy your sausages from <laughs> because you never do know you never do know uh olaf we'll we'll have these ideas uh the the book is it's one giant leak for mankind um this i mean kids are going to be fascinated with the history of very the Apollo nice moon landing. so it's, well. it's, uh, this oh, is going to be a great birthday or christmas present for kids this year and your show knitting with the maracas is on at the edinburgh fringe it is thanks guys thanks, thank guys. you cheers reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd we're in the outro we are and i wanted to say congratulations to you if you received an email from us uh, saying that you'll be joining us at abbey road that's going to be happening this next week and you'll be if you weren't lucky yeah. enough uh, to to win a place on our guest list then you'll be able to hear that episode in a few weeks commiserations to those who didn't get it again we're really they're sorry fine. they're gonna be fine they're, they're fine. gonna be they just to come fine. to Abbey road yeah but you know we've all got problems <laughs> if you weren't lucky enough that's better to uh, to to uh, get a place on our special guest list yeah then we have this live show in clapham yeah you should come to that on sunday come to that and uh, as i said details on social media and in the episode description so i'd like to thank dan edelstein laura hannah and jonah montgomery and thanks to olaf falafel yes not least for the uh, the copies of his book uh, one giant leak for mankind and as we've been on air as they say breaking news um i mean everyone will know this by by the time this goes out but mps have passed the backbench amendment which seeks to block any attempt by a future government to prorogue parliament to ensure a no deal brexit the ben burt amendment passed by 41 votes wow. of which i was one wow yeah there you go yeah History uh, in the making. Well, let's see where we're at by the yes. time this episode is released, exactly. and then by the time we're sat together in a week, I mean, yeah. it could all change. In, it? Indeed, a week is a long time in podcasting. What's this? I just coined a new phrase. Yeah. Uh, Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dents. The music was composed by Ed Seed, and the artwork that was from Emily Power. He's been wacky. He's been hairbrained. And these have been reasons to be shifted. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.